Okay, gang. I'm here at Skinwalker Valley Crematorium. We are investigating reports of paranormal activity here. Alright, stick around and let's see if we can debunk the reports. Uh. Hey. Okay. Hello. Is there anyone or anything here with me right now? Hello. I repeat. Is there anyone or anything here with me right now? Oh, wow, man. Whoa, did you hear that? Whoa, I got a response. Oh, man, that's awesome. Oh, man. Do what? And what if I don't? What, what will happen? Oh man! Tell me, what is it? What is it that I must do? if I don't go. hide. Spirit, what will I lose if I don't go to devilshide.com? Uh, I can't take much more of this, man. I must know. What will I lose? Hey, creeps and peeps. 
We here at Devil's Hide have partnered up with the Line Begins to Blur podcast to offer you sinisterly cool apparel and accessories. We are a brand focusing on horror, paranormal, rockabilly, and sugar skull graphic tees and accessories. We love all things creepy, geeky, and cheeky, and because of this, we often found it challenging to find cool threads to express our unique taste. We figured we wouldn't be the only ones to have this problem, so we created Devil's Hide Subculture Threads. We have some of the coolest designs and hard-to-find graphic tees in the afterlife. We only offer the highest quality garments available to print on. Now rest assured, not in peace, you will love your gear from devilshide.com. We offer unique men's, women's tees, tanks, and hoodies. We also offer children's sizes for most of our killer designs. Speaking of sizes, our men's slash unisex tees and hoodies are offered in sizes up to 4 and 5 extra large. As a special offer to the Line Begins to Blur podcast listeners, we are offering a special discount code to save 20% off your purchase. Just go to www.devilshigh.com. That's www.devilshide.com and use Blur20 at checkout to apply the discount. Trust me, you will not regret it. Thanks for giving us a minute to share this with you, and we will now let you get back to the podcast. Cheers. Hearing creaks coming from your closet? Rustling outside your window? Window. Did you hear guttural woots or wood knocks deep in the woods during your last camping trip? Ever seen strange lights in the sky? Ever feel like someone or something is in the room with you? Rest assured, you are not alone. We are not alone. Take a dive into the strange, unusual, and hauntingly true. You've stumbled upon the Line Begins to Blur podcast. Join your host, Chris G., as he explores the paranormal, cryptid sightings, supernatural events, along with a little true crime from the past and present. Hello, all you amazing creatures out there, and welcome back to another episode of the Line Begins to Blur podcast. I'm your host, Chris G., and in this episode, we will discuss one of Los Angeles' most prolific and most notorious whodunit murders. That's right, gang. As the title of this podcast suggests, we will be talking about the legendary Black Dahlia murder. For those of you who are out there not familiar with the story, and I know that's not very many of you, let's just cut to the point here. No pun intended. In January 1947, at the tender age of 22, aspiring starlet Elizabeth Short was brutally murdered in Los Angeles. Her body cut in half, defiled, and severely mutilated. She was found nude and posed by a local female resident on January 15, 1947, in a vacant lot near Lamarck Park on the 3800 block of LA's South Norton Avenue. To this day, her murder has never been solved. Before we get started, you know what we gotta do first. That's right, this episode's installment of the World Really News. Well then, without further ado... More than 40 camels banned from beauty contests for Botox injections. 
It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that beauty contestants often get some plastic surgery done. And why wouldn't they? It's not like the Miss Universe contest, for example, where it prohibits nips and tucks. An incident in Saudi Arabia, however, shows that the rules for animal beauty contests are much stricter. The country's authorities have cracked down on artificially touched up camels. The organizers of the, excuse me while I butcher this, of the King Abdulaziz Camel Festival banned more than 40 camels for plastic surgery. Their owners had gone to extreme lengths to make their animals prettier. The authorities found multiple cases where the owners had stretched out the camel's lips and noses using Botox injections, rubber bands, and subdermal fillers. In addition, some owners had given the camels hormones to boost their musculature. Ooh, why would someone resort to cosmetic surgery and Botox for a camel contest? Well, the answer of course is money, and lots of it. The King Abdulaziz Camel Festival, which started on December 1st, has a prize pool of $66 million. You heard me right, friends. $66 million. The enormous sum of money is divided between winning camel owners who compete in 19 categories with separate classes for all six primary colors in camels. Now, it's not just Saudi camel owners who compete either. Camel breeding is a multi-million dollar global industry, and the contest draws in camels from multiple other Gulf countries, in addition to the US, Russia, and France. And the organizers estimate that nearly 33,000 camels will be involved in the event in one way or another. At least that means that the vast majority of the contestants didn't try to cheat their way to victory. Consider this creative cheating. Elizabeth Short, born July 29, 1924, died January 15, 1947, known posthumously as the Black Dahlia, was an American woman found murdered in the Lehman Park neighborhood of Los Angeles on January 15, 1947. Her case became highly publicized due to the gruesome nature of the crime, which included the mutilation of her corpse, which was bisected at the waist. A native of Boston, Short spent her early life in New England and Florida before relocating to California where her father lived. It is commonly held that Short was an aspiring actress, though she had no known acting credits or jobs during that time in Los Angeles. She would acquire the nickname of the Black Dahlia posthumously, as newspapers of the period often nicknamed particularly lurid crimes. The term may have originated from a film noir murder mystery, The Blue Dahlia, released in 1946. After the discovery of her body, the Los Angeles Police Department began an extensive investigation that produced over 150 suspects but yielded no arrests. Short's unsolved murder and the details surrounding it have had a lasting cultural intrigue, generating various theories and public speculation. Her life and death have been the basis of numerous books and films, and her murder is frequently cited as one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history, as well as one of the oldest unsolved cases in Los Angeles County. It has likewise been credited by historians as one of the first major crimes in post-World War II America to capture natural attention. Elizabeth Short was born on July 29, 1924, in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts, the third of five daughters of Cleo A. Short and wife Phoebe May Sawyer. In 1927, the Short family briefly relocated to Portland, Maine, before settling in Medford, a suburb of Boston that same year. Short's father built miniature golf courses until he lost most of his savings in the 1929 stock market crash. In 1930, his car was found abandoned on the Charleston Bridge, and it was assumed that he had jumped into the Charles River, 
Believing her husband to be deceased, Short's mother began working as a bookkeeper to support the family. Troubled by bronchitis and severe asthma attacks, Short underwent lung surgery at the tender age of 15, after which doctors suggested she periodically relocate to a milder climate to prevent further respiratory problems. Short's mother sent her to spend winters in Miami, Florida with family and friends for the next three years. In her sophomore year, Short dropped out of Medford High School. In late 1942, Short's mother received a letter of apology from her presumed deceased husband, which revealed that he was in fact alive and had started a new life in California. In December, at age 18, Short relocated to Vallejo, California to live with her father, whom she had not seen since age 6. At the time, he was working at the nearby Mare Island Naval Shipyard on San Francisco Bay. Arguments between Short and her father led to her moving out in January 1943. Short took a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, now Vandenberg Air Force Base, near Lompoc, briefly living with a U.S. Army Air Force sergeant who reportedly abused her. She left Lompoc in mid-1943 and moved to Santa Barbara, where she was arrested on September 23, 1943 for drinking at a local bar while underage. The juvenile authorities sent her back to Massachusetts, but she returned instead to Florida, making only occasional visits to her family near Boston. While in Florida, Short met Major Matthew Michael Gordon, a decorated Army Air Force officer of the 2nd Air Commando Group who was training for deployment in Southeast Asian theater of World War II. Short later told friends that Gordon had written to propose marriage while he was recovering from injuries from a plane crash in India. She accepted his offer, but Gordon died in a second crash on August 10, 1945, less than a week before the end of the war. In July 1946, Short relocated to Los Angeles to visit Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, an acquaintance from Florida who was stationed at the Naval Reserve Air Base in Long Beach. Short spent the next six months of her life in Southern California, mostly in the Los Angeles area. Shortly before her death, she had been working as a waitress and rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. She had been variously described and depicted as an aspiring or would-be actress. According to some sources, she did in fact have aspirations to be a film star, though she had no known acting jobs or credits. On January 9, 1947, Short returned to her home in Los Angeles after a brief trip to San Diego with Robert Red Manley, a 25-year-old married salesman she had been dating. Manley stated that he dropped Short off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles and that Short was to meet her sister, who was visiting from Boston. He was, she was supposed to meet her that afternoon, but by some accounts, staff of the Biltmore recalled having seen Short using the lobby telephone. Shortly after, she was allegedly seen by patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge at 754 South Olive Street, approximately three-eighths of a mile away from the Biltmore. On the morning of January 15, 1947, Short's naked body, severed into two pieces, was found on a vacant lot on the west side of the South Norton Avenue, midway between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street in the neighborhood of Leemert Park. At the time, Leemert Park was largely undeveloped. Local resident Betty Bershinger discovered the body at approximately 10 a.m. while walking her three-year-old daughter. Initially thinking she had found a discarded store mannequin when she realized it was a corpse, she rushed to a nearby house and telephoned the police. Short's severely mutilated body was completely severed at the waist and drained of blood, leaving her skin a pallid white. 
Medical examiners determined that she had been dead for around 10 hours prior to the discovery, leaving her time of death either sometime during the evening of January 14th or the early morning hours of January 15th. The body had apparently been watched by the killer. Short's face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to the ears, creating an effect known as the Glasgow smile. She had several cuts on her thigh and breasts, where entire portions of flesh had been sliced away. The lower half of her body was positioned a foot away from the upper part, and her intestines had been tucked neatly beneath her buttocks. The corpse had been posed with her hands over her head, her elbows bent at right angles, and her legs spread apart. Upon the discovery, a crowd of passerby and reporters began to gather. Los Angeles Herald Express reporter Aggie Underwood was among the first to arrive at the scene and took several photos of the corpse and crime scene. Near the body, detectives located a heel print on the ground amid the tire tracks, and a cement sack containing watery blood was also found nearby. Now, before I get into the details here, I must warn you that some of the forensic notes are very disturbing. Feel free to fast forward if you start feeling sick to your stomach. With that being said, let's continue. An autopsy of Short's body was performed on January 16, 1947 by Frederick Newbar, the Los Angeles County Coroner. Newbar's autopsy report stated that Short was 5 feet 5 inches tall, weighed 115 pounds, and had light blue eyes, brown hair, and badly decayed teeth. There were no ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck, and an irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss on her right breast. Newbar also noted superficial lacerations on the right forearm, left upper arm, and the lower left side of her chest. The body had been cut completely in half by a technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorporectomy. The lower half of her body had been removed by transecting the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae, thus severing the intestine at the duodenum. Newbar's report noted very little bruising along the incision line, suggesting it had been performed after death. Another gaping laceration measuring four and a quarter inches in length ran longitudinally from the umbilicus to the suprapubic region. The lacerations on each side of the face, which extended from the corners of the lips, were measured at three inches on the right side of the face and two and a half inches on the left. The skull was not fractured, but there was bruising noted on the front and right side of her scalp, with a small amount of bleeding in the super superachnoid space on the right side, consistent with blows to the head. The cause of death was determined to be hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and the shock from blows to the head and face. Newbar noted that Short's anal canal was dilated at 1 and 3 fourths inches, suggesting that she might have been raped. Samples were taken from her body testing for the presence of sperm, but the results came back negative. Short was identified after her fingerprints were sent to the FBI via sound photo, a device which transmitted images by telephone and was normally used for news photographs. Short's fingerprints were on file from her 1943 arrest. Immediately following Short's identification, reporters from William Randolph Hearst Los Angeles Examiner contacted her mother, Phoebe Short in Boston, and told her that her daughter had won a beauty contest. It was only after prying as much personal information as they could from Phoebe that the reporters revealed that her daughter had in fact been murdered. The newspaper offered to pay her airfare and accommodations if she would travel to Los Angeles to help with the police investigation. That was yet another ploy since the newspaper kept her away from police and other reporters to protect its scoop. The Examiner and another Hearst newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald Express, later sensationalized the case, with one article from the Examiner describing the black tailored suit Short was last seen wearing as a tight skirt and a sheer blouse. The media nicknamed her the Black Dahlia and described her as an adventuress who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. 
Additional newspaper reports, such as one published in the Los Angeles Times on January 17th, deemed the murder a sex fiend slaying. On January 21, 1947, a person claiming to be Short's killer placed a phone call to the office of James Richardson, the editor of The Examiner, congratulating Richardson on the newspaper's coverage of the case, and stated he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing police to pursue him further. Additionally, the caller told Richardson to expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. On January 24th, a suspicious manila envelope was discovered by a U.S. Postal Service worker. The envelope had been addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers with individual words that had been cut and pasted from newspaper clippings. Additionally, a large message on the face of the envelope read, Here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. The envelope contained Short's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on pieces of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. The pocket had been carefully cleaned with gasoline, similarly to Short's body, which led police to suspect the packet had been sent directly by her killer. Despite the efforts to clean the packet, several partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI for testing. However, the prints were compromised in transit and thus could not be properly analyzed. The same day the packet was received by the examiner, a handbag and a black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley a short distance from Norton Avenue, two miles from where Short's body had been discovered. The items were recovered by police, but they had also been wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. On March 14th, an apparent suicide note scrawled in pencil on a bit of paper was found tucked in a shoe in a pile of men's clothing by the ocean's edge at the foot of Breeze Avenue in Venice, California. The note read, To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. The pile of clothing was first seen by a beach caretaker who reported the discovery to John Dillon, lifeguard captain. Dillon immediately notified Captain Christensen of West Los Angeles Police Station. The clothes included a coat and trousers of blue herringbone tweed, a brown and white t-shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks, and tan moccasin leisure shoes, size about eight. The clothes gave no clue about the identity of their owner. Police quickly deemed Mark Hansen, the owner of the dress book found in the packet, a suspect. Hansen was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner and an acquaintance of whose home Short had stayed with friends. And according to some sources, he also confirmed that the person she discovered in the alley were in fact Short's. Anne Toth, Short's friend and roommate, told investigators that Short had recently rejected sexual advances from Hansen and suggested that it was potential cause for him to kill her. However, he was cleared of suspicion in the case. In addition to Hansen, the Los Angeles Police Department interviewed over 150 men in the ensuing weeks, whom they believed to be potential suspects. Manley, who had been one of the last people to see Short alive, was also investigated, but was cleared of suspicion after passing numerous polygraph examinations. Police also interviewed several persons found listed in Hansen's address book, including Martin Lewis, who had been acquaintance of Short's. Lewis was able to provide an alibi for the date of Short's murder as he was in Portland, Oregon, visiting his father-in-law who was dying of kidney failure. A total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case during its initial stages, including 400 sheriff deputies and 250 California State Patrol officers. Various locations were searched for potential evidence, including storm drains throughout Los Angeles, abandoned structures, and various sites along the Los Angeles River. 
but the searches yielded no further evidence. City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000 reward for information leading police to Short's killer, equivalent to the amount of $115,000 today. After the announcement of the reward, various persons came forward with confessions, most of which police dismissed as false. Several of the false confessors were charged with obstruction of justice. On January 26th, another letter was received by the examiner, this time handwritten, which read, here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger. The letter also named the location at which the supposed killer would turn himself in. Police waited at the location on the morning of January 29th, but the alleged killer did not appear. Instead, at 1 p.m., the examiner offices received another cut-and-pasted letter which read, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. The graphic nature of the crime and the subsequent letters received by the examiner had resulted in a media frenzy surrounding Short's murder. Both local and national publications covered the Short story heavily many of which reprinted sensationalistic reports suggesting that Short had been tortured for hours prior to her death. The information, however, was false, yet police allowed the reports to circulate so as to conceal Short's true cause of death, cerebral hemorrhage. Further reports about Short's personal life were publicized, including details about her alleged decline of Hansen's romantic advances. Additionally, a stripper who was an acquaintance of Short's told police that she liked to get guys worked up over her, but she'd leave them hanging dry. This led some reporters and detectives to look into the possibility that Short was a lesbian and began questioning employees and patrons of gay bars in Los Angeles. This claim, however, remained unsubstantiated. The Herald Express also received several letters from the purported killer, again made with cut and pasted clippings, one of which read, I will give up on Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. On February 1st, the Los Angeles Daily News reported that the case had run into a stone wall. And with no new leads for investigators to pursue, the examiner continued to run stories on the murder and the investigation, which was front page news for 35 days following the discovery of the body. When interviewed, lead investigator Captain Jack Donahue told the press that he believed Short's murder had taken place in a remote building or shack on the outskirts of Los Angeles and her body transported into the city where it was disposed of. Based on the precise cuts and dissection of Short's corpse, the LAPD looked into the possibility that the murderer had been a surgeon, doctor, or someone with medical knowledge. In mid-February 1947, the LAPD served a warrant to the University of Southern California Medical School, which was located near the site where Short's body had been discovered, requesting a complete list of the program's students. The university agreed so long as the students' identities remained private. Background checks were conducted but yielded no results. Sergeant Finnis Brown was known to say that no lead had any conclusions. Once they'd find something, it seemed to disappear in front of their eyes, and they had various dead ends in the case by the spring of 1947. Short's murder had become a cold case with few new leads. Sergeant Brown, one of the lead detectives on the case, blamed the press for compromising the investigation through reporters probing the details and unverified reporting. On September 1949, a grand jury convened to discuss inadequacies in the LAPD's homicide unit based on their failure to solve numerous murders, especially those of women and children. In the past several years, Shorts being one of them, in the aftermath of the grand jury, further investigation was done on Shorts' past, with detectives tracing her movements between Massachusetts, California, and Florida, and also interviewed people who knew her in Texas and New Orleans. However, the interviews yielded no useful information on the murder. The notoriety of Short's murder has spurred a large number of confessions over the years, many of which have been deemed false. 
During the initial investigation into her murder, police received a total of 60 confessions, most made by men. Since that time, over 500 people have confessed to the crime, some of whom had not even been born at the time of her death. Sergeant John P. St. John, a detective who worked the case until his retirement, stated, It is amazing how many people offer up a relative as a killer. In 2003, Ralph Esdell, one of the original detectives on the case, told the Times that he believed he had interviewed Short's killer, a man who had been seen with a sedan parked near the vacant lot where the body was discovered in the early morning hours of January 15th. A neighbor driving by that day stopped to dispose of a bag of lawn clippings in the vacant lot when he saw a parked sedan, allegedly with its right rear door open. The driver of the sedan was standing in the lot. His arrival apparently startled the owner of the sedan, who approached his car and peered in the window before returning to the sedan and driving away. The owner of the sedan was followed to a local restaurant where he worked, but was ultimately cleared of suspicion. Suspects remained under discussion by various authors and experts, including a doctor named Walter Bailey, proposed by the former Times copy editor Larry Harnish, Times publisher Norman Chandler, whom biographer David Wolfe claims impregnated short, Leslie Dillon, Joseph A. Dumas, Artie Lane, aka Jeff Connors, Mark Hansen, Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, Woody Guthrie, Bugsy Siegel, Orson Welles, George Hodel, Odell's friend Fred Sexton, George Knowlton, Robert M. Red Manley, Patrick S. O'Reilly, and Jack Anderson Wilson. George Hill Hodell Jr. was a suspect, but like the others, he was never formally charged with the crime. He came to wider attention as a suspect after his death when he was accused by his son, Los Angeles homicide detective Steve Hodell, of killing Short and committing several additional murders. Prior to the Dahlia case, he was also a suspect in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, but was never charged and was accused of raping his own daughter, Tamar, but acquitted, and he fled the country several times and spent 1950 through 1990 in the Philippines. Some journalists and law enforcement have speculated a connection between the Cleveland crimes and Short's murder. Several crime authors, as well as Cleveland detective Peter Marylow, have suspected a link between the Short murder and the Cleveland Torso murders, which took place in Cleveland, Ohio between 1934 and 1938. As part of their investigation into their murders that took place before and after the Short killing, the original LAPD investigators studied the Torso murders in 1947 but later discounted any relationship between the two cases. In 1980, new evidence implicating a former torso murder suspect, Jack Anderson Wilson, a.k.a. Arnold Smith, was investigated by Detective St. John in relation to Short's murder. He claimed he was close to arresting Wilson for Short's murder, but that Wilson died in a fire on February 4, 1982. The possible connection between Short's murder and the torso murders received renewed media attention when it was profiled on the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries in 1992, in which Elliot Ness biographer Oscar Fraley suggested Ness knew the identity of the killer responsible for both cases. The February 10, 1947 murder of Jean French in Los Angeles was also considered by the media and detectives as possibly being connected to Short's killing. French's body was discovered in West Los Angeles on Grandview Boulevard, nude and badly beaten. Written on her stomach in lipstick was what appeared to say, fuck you BD, and the letters TEX below. The Herald Express covered the story heavily and drew comparison to the short murder less than a month prior, surmising the details BD to stand for Black Dahlia, according to historian John Lewis. However, the scrawling actually read PD, ostensibly standing for police department. 
Crime authors such as Steve Hodell, son of George Hill Hodell, and William Rasmussen have suggested a link between the short murder and the 1946 murder and dismemberment of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan in Chicago, Illinois. Captain Donahoe of the LAPD stated publicly that he believed that the Black Dahlia and the Chicago Lipstick murders were likely connected. Among the evidence cited is the fact that Short's body was found on Norton Avenue, three blocks west of Dengan's Boulevard, Dengan being the last name of the girl from Chicago. There was also striking similarities between the handwriting on the Dengan ransom note and that of the Black Dahlia Avenger. Both texts used a combination of capitals and small letters, and both notes contain a similar misshapen letter P and have one word that matches exactly. Convicted serial killer William Hirons served life in prison for Dengan's murder, initially arrested at 17 for breaking into a residence close to that of Dengan. Hirons claimed that he was tortured by police, forced to confess, and made a scapegoat for the murder. After being taken from the medical infirmary at the Dixon Correctional Center on February 26, 2012 for health problems, Herons died at the University of Illinois Medical Center on March 5, 2012 at the age of 83. Additionally, Steve Hodell has implicated his father George Hodell as Short's killer, citing his father's training as a surgeon as circumstantial evidence in 2003. It was revealed in notes from the 1949 grand jury report that investigators had wiretapped Hodel's home and obtained recorded conversation of him with an unidentified visitor saying, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. In 1991, Janice Knowlton, a woman who was 10 years old at the time of Short's murder, claimed that she witnessed her father, George Knowlton, beat Short to death with a claw hammer in the detached garage of family's home in Westminster. She also published a book titled Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer in 1995, in which she made additional claims that her family sexually molested her. The book was condemned as trash by Knowlton's stepsister, Jolanne Emerson, in 2004, who stated she believed it, but it was in reality. I know because I lived with her father for 16 years. Additionally, Detective St. John told the Times that Knowlton's claims are not consistent with the facts of the case. John Gilmore's 1994 book, Severed, The True Story of the Black Dahlia Murder, suggests a possible connection between Short's murder and that of Georgette Bordoff, a socialite who was strangled to death in her West Hollywood home in 1944. Gilmore suggests that Short's employment at the Hollywood Canteen, where Bordorf also worked as a hostess, could be a potential connection between the two women. However, the claim that Short ever worked at the Hollywood Canteen has been disputed by others, such as a retired Times copy editor, Larry Harnish. The 2017 book Black Dahlia, Red Rose, by Pew Eatwell, focuses on Leslie Dillon, a bellhop who was a former mortician's assistant. His associates, Mark Hansen and Jeff Connors, and Sergeant Finnis Brown, a lead detective who all had links to Hansen and was allegedly corrupt. Eatwell posits that Short was murdered because she knew too much about the men's involvement in a scheme for robbing hotels. She further suggests that Short was killed at the Astor Motel in Los Angeles, where the owners reported finding one of their rooms covered in blood and fecal matter on the morning Short's body was found. The examiner stated in 1949 that LA Police Chief William A. Wharton denied that the Flower Street Astor Motel had anything to do with the case, although its rival newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald, claimed that the murder took place there. Eatwell was working on a television documentary and a revised edition of her book was due to be released in the autumn of 2018. 
In 2000, Buzz Williams, a retired detective of the Long Beach Police Department, wrote an article for the LBPD newsletter, The Rap Sheet, on Short's murder. Williams' father, Richard F. Williams, and his friend, Con Keller, were both members of LA's gangster squad investigating the case. Williams Sr. believed that Dylan was a killer and that when Dylan returned to his home state of Oklahoma, he was able to avoid extradition to California because his ex-wife, Georgia Stevenson, was second cousins with Governor Adelaide Stevenson of Illinois, who contacted the governor of Oklahoma on Dylan's behalf. Keller believed Hansen was a killer as he had studied at a surgical school in Sweden and had thrown elaborate parties attended by prominent LAPD officials. Williams' article says that Dylan sued the LAPD for $3 million, but the suit was dropped. Harnish disputes this, claiming that Dylan was cleared by police after an exhaustive investigation, and that district attorney's files positively placed him in San Francisco when Short was killed. Harnish claims that there was no LAPD cover-up, and that Dylan did in fact receive a financial settlement from the city of Los Angeles, but has not produced concrete evidence to prove this. Numerous details regarding Short's personal life and death have been points of public dispute. The eager involvement of both the public and press in solving her murder have been credited as factors that complicated the investigation significantly, resulting in a complex, sometimes inconsistent narrative of events. According to Anne-Marie DeStefano of the Portland Tribune, many unsubstantiated stories have circulated about Short over the years. She was a prostitute, she was frigid, she was pregnant, she was a lesbian, and somehow instead of fading away over time, the legend of the Black Dahlia just keeps getting more convoluted. Harnish has refuted several supposed rumors and popular conceptions about Short and her murder, and also disputed the validity of Gilmore's book Severed, claiming that the book is 25% mistakes and 50% fiction. Harnish had also examined the district attorney files, and contrary to Eightwell's claims, the files show that Dylan was thoroughly investigated and was determined to have been in San Francisco when Short was killed. Harnish speculated that Eatwell either did not find these files or she chose to ignore them. A number of people, none of whom knew Short, contacted police and the newspapers and claimed to have seen her during her so-called missing week between her January 9th disappearance and the discovery of her body on January 15th. Police and DA investigators ruled out each alleged sighting. In some cases, those interviewed were identifying other women whom they had mistaken for Short. Short's whereabouts in the days leading up to her murder and the discovery of her body are unknown. After the discovery of Short's body, Numerous Los Angeles newspaper printed headlines claiming that she had been tortured leading up to her death. This was denied by law enforcement at the time, but they allowed the claims to circulate so to keep Short's actual case of death a secret from the public. Some sources state that Short's body was covered in cigarette burns inflicted on her while she was still alive, though there is no indication of this on her official autopsy report. In Severed, Gilmore states that the coroner who performed Short's autopsy suggested in conversation that she had been forced to consume feces based on his findings when, exa when examining the contents of her stomach. The claim had been denied by Harnage and is also not indicated in Short's official autopsy, though it has been reprinted in several print and online media. According to newspaper reports, shortly after the murder, Short received the nickname Black Dahlia from staff and patrons at a Long Beach drugstore in mid-1946 as wordplay on the film Blue Dahlia. Other popularly circulating rumors claim that the media crafted the name due to Short's adorning her hair with dahlias. According to the FBI official website, she received the first part of the nickname from the press for her rumored penchant for sheer black clothes. However, reports by DA investigators state that the nickname was invented by newspaper reporters covering her murder. 
Herald Express reporter Breville Means, who interviewed Short's acquaintances at the drugstore, had been credited with first using the Black Dahlia name, though reporters Underwood and Jack Smith have also been alternatively named as its creators. Now, while some sources claim that Short was referred to or went by that name during her life, others dispute this. Both Gilmore and Harnish agree that the name originated during Short's lifetime and was not a creation of the press. Harnish states that it was in fact a nickname she earned from the staff of the Long Beach drugstore she frequented. In Severed, Gilmore names an A.L. Landers as the proprietor of the drugstore, though he does not provide the store's name. Prior to the circulation of the Black Dahlia name, Short's killing had been dubbed the werewolf murder by the Herald Express due to the brutal nature of the crime. Many true crime books claim that Short lived in or visited Los Angeles at various times in the mid-40s, including Gilmore's Severed, which claims she worked at the Hollywood Canteen. This is disputed by Harnage, who states that Short did not, in fact, live in Los Angeles until after the canteen's closing in 1945. Although some of her acquaintances and several authors and journalists describe Short as a prostitute or call girl during her time in Los Angeles. Now, according to Harnish, the grand jury proved that there was no existing evidence that she was ever a prostitute. Harnish claims that the rumor regarding Short's history as a prostitute originates from John Gregory Dune's 1977 novel, True Confessions, which is based in part of the crime. Another widely circulated rumor, sometimes used to counter claims that Short was a prostitute, it states that Short was unable to have sexual intercourse because of a congenital defect that resulted, I'm gonna murder this, genital Tysogenesis, also known as infantile genitalia, meaning she had a small wuha. Los Angeles County District Attorney's files state that the investigators had questioned three men with whom Short had engaged in sex, including a Chicago police officer who was a suspect in the case. FBI files on the case also contain a statement from one of Short's alleged lovers. Short's autopsy itself, which was reprinted in full in Michael Newton's 2009 book The Encyclopedia of Unsolved Crimes, notes that her uterus was small. However, no other information on the autopsy is provided that would suggest her reproductive organs were anything other than anatomically normal. The autopsy also states that Short was not and had never been pregnant, contrary to what had been claimed prior to and following her death. Another rumor that Short was a lesbian has often circulated. According to Gilmore, this rumor began after Babel Means of the Herald Express was told by the deputy coroner that Short wasn't having sex with men due to her purportedly small genitalia. Means took this to mean that Short had sex with women, and both he and reporter Sid Hughes began fruitlessly investigating gay bars in Los Angeles for further information. Short is interred at the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. After her younger sisters had grown up and married, their mother Phoebe moved to Oakland to be near their daughter's grave. She finally returned to the East Coast in the 1970s where she lived into her 90s. On February 2nd, 1947, just two weeks after Short's murder, Republican State Assemblyman C. Don Feld was prompted by the case to introduce a bill calling for the formation of a sex offender registry. The state of California would become the first U.S. state to make the registration of sex offenders mandatory. Short's murder has been described as one of the most brutal and culturally enduring crimes in American history, and Time Magazine listed it as one of the most infamous unsolved cases in the world. Short's life has been the basis of numerous books, television shows, and films, both fictionalized and non-fiction. Among the most famous fictional accounts of Short's death is James Elroy's 1987 novel, The Black Dahlia, which, in addition to the murder, explored the larger fields of politics, crime, corruption, and paranoia in post-war Los Angeles. 
Elroy's novel was adapted into a 2006 film of the same name by director Brian De Palma. Short was played by actress Mia Kirshner, and both Elroy's novel and its film adaptation bear little relation to the facts of the case. Short was also portrayed in heavily fictionalized accounts by Lucille Arnaz in the 1975 television film Who is the Black Dahlia? Also, she was played by Mina Savari in the series American Horror Story in 2011, featuring Short in the plot line of the episode Spooky Little Girl, and again in 2018 with Return to Murder House. Wow, what a case, right? I guess you could say that um, Elizabeth Short managed to get what she always wanted, to make a huge name for herself. Too bad it came at such a steep price. I wonder if she knew that she could attain such a legacy by offering her life. Would she have done it anyway? Alright kiddos, well let's sign off here and end this episode. We will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Until then, thanks again for listening and I look forward to seeing you come back for the next one. Cheers. As always, if you have any ideas of subject matter that you would like us to cover, please don't be shy. Just go to our website at www.thelinebegainstheblur.com and you can record your story on our Anchor message recorder. We can play that on our podcast. Or if you're feeling shy about sharing your voice with the world, you can always submit via written account using the submission form that will send us the deets directly to our email inbox. Also, we would like to thank our new sponsor, Devil's Hide. Please check out their site and show some support. You won't be disappointed, and with their awesome and creeptastic shirts, hoodies, hats, and accessories, you will definitely find something that tickles your fancy. Don't forget to use your special discount code, BLUR20, to get 20% off your order. We will be launching some Line Begins to Blur exclusives to them very soon. I will share that info with you once we are good to go. This episode was produced by me, Chris G, and most of the music and sound effects you heard today were provided by DJ Elite. Thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to having you come back. Until next time, take care, my friends. You've been listening to the Line Begins to Blur podcast with your host, Chris G. Join us every other week for new episodes. <laughs> <laughs>